This episode of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you by Away Travel. Are you finally ready to leave your house after a year of being cooped up? Well, you're going to need some quality luggage, and Away has got you exactly what you need. They started with the perfect suitcase and then built from there, creating a range of travel standards developed from the travel stories of the people they met along the way, their friends and their seatmates. And the pieces aren't just smart, they're thoughtful with features that solve real travel problems. And they took the direct-to-consumer approach to lower prices and make sure that that quality is guaranteed. So, you can get in a way suitcase and know it's going to be with you for life. Find out for yourself. All you have to do is go to podgo.co slash away, P-O-D-G-O dot C-O slash away, and get started on that first step to make your journey seamless. Hey, you awake? Yeah. just want you to know I hate you. So is my dad. Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God. Why don't you tell me a story? How do you sleep at night? I don't want to hang out with a bunch of wannabe corporate sellouts. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories exist to lay waste to the rumor and the innuendo. Rumor. The things innuendo. That, things you've heard about all those songs and bands that you love. Uh, we have fun. My name's Brian. And I'm Murdoch, and it's always exciting for, for the two of us to get together. We don't tell each other really a lot of times what we're going to talk about. If you've heard the show before, you know kind of what we're going to do, and people... Hear us do it once or twice, and then they will say, ooh, I have something I want you to check out. So going to the mailbox, uh, I did get a letter from Ed. Ed wrote the show to say, I would love to hear about the crackdown on sampling in music. Uh, I believe it started with the Beastie Boys, but I'm not 100% sure. What, what do you think, Mark? Did it start with the Beastie Boys? They did get sued. Paul's Boutique, they did get sued in that record. Did they? That's, that's, Did they? This is what we're here to talk about. So this is a great topic, and this question is particularly good because it illustrates the reason we do this show, right? It's like, I think oh, I know I this know. thing. I think I know this thing. I think I know this thing about sampling. I think it involved the Beastie Boys. I don't know the specifics. I Maybe that's not even right. We are going to check out if the sampling crackdown started with the Beastie Boys. Also, a fantastic reason to talk about the Beastie Boys, a group we've never <sighs> talked about on the show before. Am I right or am I right? Beastie Boys song like comes on random, you know, in the middle of the house, and Intergalactic comes on. and Who's like, you know what, man? This is real too down-tempo for me. Intergalactic is my jam, and part of that so is... That's- it, well, yeah, really? part of it's my age. Well, part of it's my age. You have to remember that was early to that was what late nineties, ninety eight, ninety nine, something like that. So I was in high school. Wow. So that that was my high school Beastie Boys song. Wow. Um, but of course, so crazy. The song Our Beastie Boys experience is so different. Wow. Well, in the song that made the world fall in love with them is the song they they came to kind of hate because it really misidentified yeah. them as what yeah. for what they were trying to do. Oh, Brian, I meant to tell you. I saw a video of Janie Lane from Warrant with Dangerous Toys and one other band, and they, they, they were on tour, and they closed their show with this. <laughs> See, that's how you make it a true rock and roll bedtime story episode. You bring it all back to Warrant. Uh, so here's, here's the, the story of uh, the Beastie Boys in particular with this song, right? And, and we're going to get to the sampling very quickly by starting here. So, do you remember? Do you remember the cover, though, Brian? Uh, do, you, do you remember the cover of "License to Ill"? Do you yeah. remember what it was? Yeah. So, but what was it really? Uh, it was an airplane, right? Is it really an airplane? A missile? No. What is it? What, what am I missing? I always thought it looked like a joint. Ah, uh, uh, that does look like a joint. Now that I look so, at it. 
So now, but we don't really know if it is. Well, I think it is. That's the next episode of Rock and Roll Bad Dubs. <laughs> is it a joint on the front of like? Okay, so I didn't know a lot about Paul's Boutique, right? I know it's a landmark album. I know it's early in the Beastie's career, but it's actually not as early as I had had in my head. I, for some reason, thought it was like the first Beastie Boys record. It's not. Oh no, it's, no, it was their and it was their flop. It was the their second flop. Beastie's record, and it's important to them because they'd had big success with License to Ill, but they were frustrated because that song we just listened to had come out and. It had put them in this box of of being frat boys, and the irony yeah. the irony is that they made the song to make fun of the people that they knew yeah. that were in fraternities. Yeah, but, that the um, the Beastie Boys do, uh, documentary, that live show where they do the on stage when they talked about this and they talked about what they became and and <laughs> when they just realized like, wow, it's a joke. Like we run out here and we throw beer on everybody and. And and this has happened. And yeah. it's like whether how much they were trying to have fun or make fun of it, they became it. Did you and they know had to, they had to reinvent, yeah. Started as a hardcore punk band and they were a yeah. four piece. You know who played drums for them when they were a four piece? Yeah, uh uh it was a, a lady Kate Schellenbach, um, who went on yes. to be the drummer in Luscious Jackson and eventually a successful segment producer on TV. She's worked for Ellen, for James Gordon, for Chelsea Handler. She oh, like does talk no. shows. No way! That's crazy. Yeah, they, they, the Beastie Boys originally started a label, a label called Grand Royal, and Grand Royal, the the Licious Jackson first record was on it, and it was great. And they had Ben Lee for Pete's sake. It's before Ben Lee like really had a record deal. So, but yeah, their punk stuff is hilarious. Egg Raid on Mojo is the one that's kind of famous. Um, but I love the punk rock songs that you know they did later, really. But yeah, so they were in a kind of they were a really shitty punk band. I mean, they weren't like uh, they were young. I mean, they're really young young guys. This when is they from were in an the punk band interview with Britain's Sunday Times as as recent as last year. We started out as a hun- a hardcore punk band with Kate Schellenbach as our drummer. We ended up a cartoon rap version of '80s metal band, and we kicked Kate out. <laughs> How wrong was that? Yeah, when the Beasties right. began, the majority of our friends were girls. It's embarrassing, and I think we let them down. Now, not only did this happen. They they, you know, rocket to success, and I don't know how much you kn- you know about Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons and the whole Def yeah. Jam controversy, oh, right? I, man, I'm there, but keep going. But they're irritated that they all of a sudden are in this. They're they're being pigeonholed as this frat rock band, and they get in a fight with Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons and say, "We're not going to make music." And so, do you know what they did? They they didn't pay them, right? They quit paying them. They refused. <laughs> They took their royalties, cut them off. They Sony yeah. and, and Rick Rubin has a, has more or less apologized for this in recent years, but it's an unholy mess, right? The guys eventually Ru- Russell, get Russell Simmons never apologized about it. Actually, he did too. Like like on Twitter last year, like very recently. Oh, oh like uh, kind of. Well, he's, as much as Russell Simmons apologizes for anything. Well, he's also had some several things to deny lately in the last couple of years. Yeah. But go ahead. Uh, so they eventually get free of Def Jam and they go to Capitol Records and they tell Capitol Records, we want to make something different, right? So they're trying to figure out what that's going to be. And Ad Rock is hanging out at a buddy's house. And this guy has some other friends who stop by. And so they're all hanging out in this house and these other two friends put on some music. And it's actually an album that they've just made, but they don't tell anyone what it is. It's supposed to be their new record. And Ad Rock 
loves it. And he thinks, this is what we need. So he says, guys, can I buy those beats? It turns out, do you know who was in that apartment with him? Is the Chemical Brothers? Is that right? Okay, so actually the Dust Brothers... Oh, is the dust? Isn't that well, funny that I got him mixed up? Did you know that which which brother which which uh, which <laughs> which EDM brother band it's from the nineties? So funny that you say this because I did not know this, and I thought, oh, did other people oh, know this? There actually was a big, like I don't know if it went to a lawsuit, but there was a controversy because the Chemical Brothers were calling themselves the Dust Brothers. There was like a thing where the Chemical Brothers and the Dust Brothers were not getting along because like, the Chemical Brothers were calling themselves the Dust Brothers, and the Dust Brothers were already somewhat established, and there was like a fight about it. And oh, they, were, oh. they were like imaging themselves the same, with like that same font and stuff, I guess. Oh, wow. I never knew I that. That is no that's, idea. That's, some crazy, that's, that's crazy professional well, mobster, it, mobster music shit to do there to you, another artist. What you just did, the mistake you just made, illustrates why they fought about it <laughs> because I realized I too was like, I don't know the difference between the chemical brothers and the dust brothers. So let's talk a set, just a second about the dust brothers because the, the, what they're known for besides working with the beastie boys and creating this, what goes on to be called the Sergeant peppers of hip hop. Uh, yeah, they, totally. They, they had been working with tone Loke and young MC. They were writing songs <laughs> for these guys. Okay. They end up co-writing and producing what becomes Paul's Boutique, a large part of what actually was just supposed to be a Dust Brothers record. They were going to put it out as an instrumental record. And Ad-Rock convinced them to let, he's like, come on, come in, we'll do this together, and we're going to rap over all the stuff that you have created. So, I mean, I don't know when the last time you heard Shake Your Rump is, but, like, let's just celebrate that moment for a second, because... We need to listen. Listen to the samples because this is we're going to bring it back. We're going to bring it back to the sampling question in just a second. There is this moment where they sample a riff from a Beatles song, and it's like unmistakable to me, like imprinted in my brain, even though I had to think about which Beatles song it was. And I was like, oh, this is why people get mad about this stuff. Like, you know what I mean? It was like, and the, just the idea that there was a sample on this rap record that was pulling from, like, like the Beatles notoriously not giving people permission to use their stuff, right? Um, but they, they did, remember, they did Led Zeppelin too. There's a, uh, in time, um, I'm trying to remember what song it was, but yeah, they, they did a custard pie. They like just lifted like just a little bit of it. Yeah. yeah. It's like, we can't be real. We're going to get into the sampling thing in just a second. But before we do that, I'm going to stop here and acknowledge what I'm sure you're dying to tell me about the dust brothers. Uh, I don't know. I, I love the you, beastie boys. Aren't you dying me. to tell me about the 1995 album that the dust brothers produced? For Motley Crue frontman Vince Neil, his second solo album called Carved in Stone. <laughs> You're really not going to take this exit onto the highway of talking about Motley Crue on every episode? You're not going to do it? I just want to know, how in the hell did that happen? Oh, e- totally even weirder. Do you know what massive 1990s defining pop hit was produced by the Dust Brothers? Like, do, Can you pull this one out? 
Nah. Yeah, yeah, oh that's that's God. a little song right. by a, a group of brothers that went by Hanson. Totally was, weird. That's so strange. Yeah. I, so, the, you know, he did. They did Odelay too. Yeah. They did. Uh, I'm just, I'm just like looking at it. I didn't. Like I all, clearly all the didn't know Beck we were records, talking about the Dust Brothers. All the all the Beck records that like account for much uh, were Dust Brothers records, and that's really where you know Beastie Boys and Beck is where people where they keep their cred and where people really uh, connect them. But yeah, they have done some crazy stuff, including early young MC Hanson uh, and Vince Neal's 1995 second solo record. So, wow. Oh my God, and here it really is. The Dust Brothers' name and trademark was used by the British duo that eventually became the Chemical Brothers as their beginning. But do you think I make I that up? I can't believe that. I can't believe it. It's just so unbelievable. I will say I just, that it's one of those things that even when I said it, I was like, there's probably people listening to this who think I'm like, her like, did he get that wrong? Because it is so bizarre. But it explains why I was, I've never quite been able to keep straight which one was which. Yeah, I, I didn't know. I just remember I thinking that the chemical brothers had hits i just kind of forgot about the dust brothers so the, and they're more significant in my life they're, than the chemical they're much brothers. more significant well and here's the difference the chemical brothers were artists who really created albums and the dust brothers kind of became a production duo mm-hmm. so i mean yeah. that, that's kind of the difference but mm-bop. so mm-bop. amazing right i mean and like, like you know listen we can talk about their street cred but i mean would you not take that paycheck if you had produced that song i mean that song still is around and it's not going anywhere right. It just depends on whether you want to be a capitalist or whatever, make money. You just have to make those decisions once you have a skill set to do stuff. Uh, isn't that the truth? Um, so I, I am so delighted, by the way, Brian, that we are talking about freaking Paul's Boutique in any way, shape, or form, which is one of my—we haven't even had this conversation, so I can say it out loud. Say it out loud. It's one of my favorite records yeah, I knew that. of all time. I knew that. I love this record. So here's where we get to the question of samples. There's no way to listen to that album and not say, holy cow, there's a bunch of samples on here, right? Originally, like I said, it was going to be this instrumental Dust Brothers record. They were really pushing the envelope and layering samples, right? So they're, they're one of the uh, kind of the purveyors of doing this, where they're just like multi-layering stuff on top of itself. Now, here's what ends up being on Paul's Boutique. Do you have any idea at the numbers? 105 songs are sampled, <laughs> including um, 24 individual samples on the last track alone. Yeah, the that last track that has the Hello Brooklyn. Yeah. yeah. It has that But um, here's here's the interesting thing, Murdoch. The this wasn't really a thing yet. The Dust Brothers were so far ahead that there wasn't an infrastructure for the copyright game really yet. And I can't believe I figured like at this point they were paying for it. So, so. they were, but listen, contrary to popular belief, most of the sampling for Paul's Boutique was eventually cleared, but it was at a dramatically lower cost compared to today's rates because there's yeah. no way, and we're going to get to this in just a second, very cost prohibitive because of something else uh, that happens in a few years after this to, to do this sort of thing now. But at the time, because of when it was and because they were so far ahead, they were actually able to authorize these for, quote, easily... Easily and affordably, something that would be unthinkable in today's litigious music industry. Now, Mario yeah, Caldato I mean, Jr. was an engineer on the record, and he said, 
quote, we realized we'd spent a lot of money in the studio. We think we spent about a quarter million in rights and licensing. <laughs> think about that. A quarter million dollars for 105 songs. That's like one song maybe now, depending on what. If you yeah. try to license a Beatles song, it's probably a quarter million dollars. Yeah. Remember um, Tom Petty? Uh, oh, yeah. It was, won't you stay with me? That song. Yeah. yeah. And, uh whatever Tom Petty song and you know and someone asked him in an interview about that lawsuit and he wasn't flipping about it but he did say to the a certain extent like I'm I'm not an entertainment lawyer you know I'm <laughs> you know this isn't yeah. my 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 lane yeah I'm gonna let other people do that and get that money for me right you yeah. hire the right people so here's here is what's what the question that is begged you know we're asked by Ed, tell me about the crackdown on sampling. And Paul's Boutique was not a crackdown on sampling. It was a success of sampling. So if sampling was pushed forward by the Beasties and the Dust Brothers, what happened to cause the crackdown? Also, real quickly, you've already said this, but I just want to underline it. The album was originally considered a commercial disappointment, but has since become one of the most respected records ever. And like I said, some call it the Sgt. Peppers of hip-hop. I mean, it is. Yeah. it cannot be overstated, its influence. But if it wasn't this, Ed's question is, what was it? And, I, and do you have any idea? Who was it that pushed the envelope so far that the U.S. court system had to get involved and intervene and change and literally change the world of hip-hop forever? Who did it? First... I thought in my head that it was and I was like, no, there's no way MC Hammer lifted that much Rick James and didn't pay him. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, well, it has to be two live crew. You know, you're wrong on both counts. Hey, just a quick intermission between sets on Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories here to remind you that the show is brought to you today by Away Travel. You are looking to get out of your house finally and you're going to need a suitcase for it. And they have got exactly what you need. The perfect suitcase. They took the direct-to-consumer approach. They're keeping their prices low and their quality high. And you can feel confident that when you get an away suitcase, it's going to be with you for life. Don't just listen to me, though. Find out for yourself. Go over to uh, podgo.co slash away. P-O-D-G-O dot C-O slash away to get started and let away travel make your journey seamless. Now, back to the show court case that caused hip-hop to change forever involved it was not this song but it involved a guy who you may know uh by the name marcel theo hall does that name ring a bell that's his legal <laughs> given name but but which, you you know him as biz my kids think this is hilarious to sing along to because of how he sings yeah <laughs> This becomes a huge part of this story. Do you know why he was okay with what he did here? No, this is a, this is another guy's song. He did not get sued for this song. He used it, and he used he did something called interpolation. Do you know what that is? Um, it's a new legal term for me, Brian. Why don't you lay it on me? So I learned about what interpolation is 
I from, learned something today. No, 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 no. I learned this a while back, it, and I'll tell you why. It was because I was uh, like, okay, it, it won't surprise you that I've always been a nerd that reads all the liner notes. Um, and I, years ago, was reading the liner notes uh, of a band called Gym Class Heroes. And in the in the credits of one of their record sleeves, it described um, what they did on this song as an interpolation. And I, had, I didn't know what that meant, so I looked it up. Do you remember this song? This was a bit of a radio hit for them called Cupid's Chokehold, but it takes Breakfast in America by Supertramp, and it puts yeah, the guy like from Fallout Boy playing with the words and singing over the hook. Now, the thing about Gym Class Heroes, a hip-hop band, but they're a full band, right? So they have, they're, they're kind of outfitted like a punk band. Why this is important is because when you interpolate something, you have other musicians playing the hook. So it's kind of the cross between a cover and a sample. A sample is when you take the actual recording. An interpolation is when you replay the requested sample using new instrumentalists. Now, this is important because you already mentioned capitalism. Why do you think it why do you think it matters? I can't believe that's a real legal term and you can do that. So, if you use the newly recorded version, you only have to pay the songwriter. If you right. use the sample, you have to pay the songwriter, the artist, the label, and potentially other people. But if you have the other, ba- if you're basically covering a piece of it, you're, now you're, this this works, and we're going to get to this after we get through the court case. This works and is actually what tons of hip hop artists have done since the early 90s in this court case where producers will have instrumentalists re-record pieces for things they need to use because economically it's the only way they can do it. Absolutely. I always wondered why and man, I never those dots would never have been put together without without this conversation really. So wow. this, okay. I, it's a really interesting kind of history yeah. and legal lesson in, in the world of music and it's one of those things that again, you just you hear bits and pieces of this, you know the Beastie Boys sampled 105 songs on Paul's Boutique, but here is what happened. I'm going to give you the scoop real quickly on what happened with Biz Marquis. So, he has this big hit a few years go by, and he releases a record called I Need a Haircut. It comes out in 1991, and on it, he has a song that you have to really look around on the internet to find now because they have tried to get rid of it, and it is called Alone Again. And my guess is you've maybe never heard it. Let me play you a clip right now. I was on my way to 125th. I saw this death bench. Yo, that's my man Cliff. As I flagged him down, he pulled to the side. At this moment, I had to swallow my pride. Cause usually I wouldn't ask for a lift. But it was cold as hell, and my legs were stiff. He said, Hey, Biz, what you want? A ride? I said, Hell yeah. He said, I can't cause my girl's inside. So he jetted off, leaving two tracks. So you, you hear the riff, right? You hear the piano. Do you have any idea what song that is? No. No idea. Okay. Who's that? It's a song from the 70s. Done by a guy named Gilbert O'Sullivan. Oh yes, I know who that is. The I'm song with it. The song is called "Alone Again Naturally." Oh yeah, yeah. You know what? So amazing. I would have never have pulled that sample out for that song. That's the only 
real song I can think about from that artist. And originally I thought, man, if Bismarck Key has sampled Alone Again by Dokken, I am going to <laughs> shit in my pants right now, Brian. But anyway, yeah. So, so yeah, that's that's a like you'll find it on like 70s comps. Yeah. Like it, yeah. it was you've, apparently, I guess it was a real big hit, just not you know, it's not in our lane. You you've <laughs> heard it uh in a cracker barrel and you probably thought it was Paul McCartney. Um so I'm going to play it in a moment, but I need to tell you a little bit about this guy. A weird cat. He gave up dating when he was popular, supposedly, because women would distract him from his songwriting. Um, To get the record deal, he wore weird shorts and got a bad haircut to, like, draw attention about him. So this is all real. Um, We could do a whole episode on Gilbert (laughs) O'Sullivan, but I'm not sure how many people would listen to it. It is all super weird. His name was Ray. His real name is Ray Sullivan. And this label guy convinces him, and, and this is all, he's Irish, so this is all in Ireland. He convinces him to change it to Gilbert. And do you know why he wants him to change it to Gilbert? He was famous. No, I don't know. He, he, wants, to, he wants to confuse the market because you might, and this is where I've always, like I, when I read about Gilbert O'Sullivan, I was like, are we talking about the Pirates of Penzance? So yeah. Gilbert and Sullivan wrote mm-hmm. operas in the 1800s. Yes. And they, so that's it? He changed his name to Gilbert. And put out records so that people would be like, oh, yeah, Gilbert uh, Sullivan, Gilbert. Like, it would just sound familiar. Like, the marketing pitch was like, people <laughs> like, I, I, you cannot make this Brilliant. stuff up. So Brilliant. his success is somewhat limited. Um, but, I like, let's hear the tune for a second because um, it really does bear this striking resemblance to uh, to Paul McCartney. And I, I want to spend a little bit of time with the song uh, for a very specific reason in just a moment, but because the song itself is super weird, but here's a snippet. And he got paid, right? Now you hear that snippet. Um, those notes are weird. When a little while from now <laughs> If I'm not feeling any less sound Promise myself to treat myself and visit a nearby town. And climbing to the top, yeah. throw myself off in an effort to make clear to ever what it's like when you're shattered. Left so I mean, yeah, of course you can you can hear the Beatles influence, right? You can hear what they were going for. It's it's a harmless tune, but I I want to take a quick detour because you know. I'll, we probably should start a segment or side uh, part of this podcast where we talk about like the rock and roll bookshelf that we reference all the time. We often talk about the Law and Friend book. One book that hasn't really come up on this show before but does de- uh, definitely live on the Rock and Roll Bedtime Story bookshelf in my house is a book that my wife bought me years and years ago called I Hate Myself and I Want to Die, the 52 most depressing songs you've ever heard. It's by a guy named yeah. Tom Reynolds. Have you seen this book? I used I, I used to own it, and I either loaned it or sold it. Great, uh, I promise great book. This is this is not your copy. Uh, so <laughs> there is an it was essay. good. I just I want someone else to have it. It was awesome. There is an essay on Alone Again Naturally, um, which <laughs> makes the ranking uh, uh, among the fifty two most depressing uh, songs you've ever heard. Um, it, it is in the section called "I Had No Idea That Song Was So Morbid." And let me just read you a piece here. Okay. Uh, Hey, Paul McCartney has a new song out, radio listeners remarked, when a bouncy piano-driven single entitled Alone Again Naturally first hit the airwaves in 1972. This misconception was quickly cleared up when, 25 seconds into it, the singer announced that he was going to throw himself off a tower. Wait a minute, people said. That's not Paul McCartney. Who is this guy, and why is he ruining my day? 
That guy was <laughs> Gilbert O'Sullivan, a diminutive, a diminutive Irish singer-songwriter who inexplicably hit number one in the United States with Alone Again Naturally. It's a number one hit. A musically wow. ebullient, uh, yet fatalistic song about a depressed man who's been jilted on his wedding day. It's the only composition not written by Paul McCartney that still sounds like he wrote it, and then chucked it aside muttering, what was the bejesus I was thinking? O'Sullivan had recorded unsuccessfully for several years and was taken under the wing of a music manager and record label owner named Gordon Mills, the man who oversaw the careers of Tom Jones and Engelbert Humperdinck. He later used Mills to get out of a draconian record contract and was awarded back royalties and the rights to all his master recordings. The success of Alone Again Naturally, along with the fact that he was a pianist, made many people at the time consider O'Sullivan a serious rival to another pop music sensation, Mr. Elton John. This comparison proved to be uh, specious because Gilbert O'Sullivan never repeated the success of this song, and B, the public still haven't forgiven him for this song. Oh, oh, wow. (laughs) What a a way to punch him in the balls at the end. Uh, That was unexpected. Skipping ahead uh, a couple of sections, the way this kind of, he spends some time talking about the song, and then he he has a section for each of these songs that he profiles uh, called Why It's Depressing. And he writes, everybody can identify with feeling beaten down by a failed relationship and getting left at the altar is certainly humiliating. But the problem with Alone Again Naturally is the song's protagonist. Most of us have met guys like him. You can find him in bookstores at 11 o'clock on a Friday night, flipping through Nietzsche anthologies. They think the movie Train Spotting is too upbeat, and they think The Cure are too upbeat. They do office temp work while pinning unreadable screenplays in their spare time, which are 40% dream sequences. The man is exhausting. Uh, who went through the, his entire adolescence with a kick-me sign taped on his back. Now grown, his sullen, mumbling personality has been mistaken for being deep and introspective by a wide-eyed girl who met him in a coffee shop while he was hunched over his latest script, thinking, how would a dwarf say this? Within a month, they got engaged. <laughs> so, I mean, hey, it's a little bit of a plug for this book, but I'm sure you can find it online. I Hate Myself and I Want to Die. It's a rock and roll bedtime stories endorsed uh, a book by Tom Reynolds. Thanks to Tom Reynolds for that contribution. Okay, so back to our story. The legal case comes to be known as Grand Upright Music Limited versus Warner Brothers Records. It happens uh, in um, 1992 or 1991. And basically, the company that owns the Gilbert O'Sullivan track Here's this Bismarcky song. They know it's a sample of Alone Again, and they bring this lawsuit, and they get lucky because they get a judge who doesn't quite seem to understand music or hip-hop. And this is kind of, I think, how this has gone down now. People kind of think of it this way. His name's Kevin Thomas Duffy, which, first of all, what? He's a judge? Kevin Kevin? Thomas Duffy? Um, Kevin? And he granted an injunction against the defendant despite Warner Brothers' claim that Upright, Grand Upright did not own a valid copyright in the sampled song. Um, Warner Brothers denied that Grand Upright even owned the copyright to the song, though Grand Upright produced documentation that O'Sullivan had transferred the title to them. And O'Sullivan himself testified to that regard. So everything about this is weird. Like, Gilbert O'Sullivan has owned it. He, like, sells it, probably because he needs money at some point, and now this other company has it, and this other company is going after Bismarck. Yeah, what a drag for him, too. So, yeah, it's kind of like, I mean, it almost sounds like patent trolling, like, for if, if anyone knows what that is, but... 
that's a whole rabbit trail we won't go down, but basically when people are are literally looking for something kind of similar to some very vague patent they've bought basically so they can sue people and shake them down for money, it almost think, is like this. I think we have them now. They're called entertainment lawyers. Yeah. But continue, my man. So anyway, the like Judge Kevin Thomas Duffy eventually in the decision of this like quotes the Bible well, I mean, why not? Like he At says, this like, point, I was like, what? That that was not, I figured that might happen. Thou shalt not steal. Like he literally puts that in the opinion. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, according well, I mean, to the, pretty spot on. Yeah. His opinion um, <laughs> is, okay, so then basically the case hinges on this. At one point, Warner Brothers says like, oh, we, like they kind of try to play both sides. And at one point they kind of say like, oh, we didn't know what we were doing. And the reason they get hung out to dry by that is that the Grand Upright music folks are able to go back and find an attempt that Warner Brothers or someone had made at some point to license the song. So they made an attempt. They got caught. And then they didn't get permission or they just probably didn't get a response. And so they used it anyway. And that's what hung them out to dry. But regardless of what you think of Judge Kevin Thomas Duffy and his use of the Bible, um, most people have come to think that this is a really, really ridiculous um, and bad decision. Uh, His opinion, the the, uh, Copyright Infringement Project of UCLA Law and Columbia Law School calls Judge Duffy's opinion an iffy understanding on the part of this judge of the facts and issues before him. Like they just, Grand Upright got lucky because they got a judge who didn't get it. Um, and here's here's what happened. I mean, we kind of know, right? But the court case had a major effect on hip hop up until today. Uh, sample clearance fees prohibited the use of more than one or two samples for most recordings with some mechanical rights holders demanding up to 100% of royalties. So there's some people who would say like, yeah, you can use my song, but basically all the money you make off that song needs to go to me because you're only making it because you're using my song, right? Yeah. Each sample had to be cleared. Every record label now was like, dude, we're not getting into this with weird people coming out like Grand Upright Music Limited hopping a boat and coming over here from Ireland or wherever they were from and like shaking us down. We're not doing that. So everything, you know, if a producer, the onus thing could get, you know, it's producers are, are having to be called into account for what they're using behind the board. And it really changes what's done. Um, wow. Yeah. What so weird. It, for instance, like who does this affect? Bomb squad, right? You know, bomb squad, public enemy. Yeah. So man. they they were using dozens of samples, not quite Paul's boutique, but they were using a lot of samples per song and it just became prohibitively expensive. They couldn't do it anymore. Overnight, you and this is from a, a pitchfork article, overnight it became forbiddingly difficult and expensive to incorporate even a handful of samples into a new beat. Producers scaled back their creations and often augmented one choice groove with a bevy of instrumentalist embellishments. I- I'd like to say, even though the Sgt. Pepper of uh, of hip hop, the the Paul's Boutique record is that thing. That's a pretty nice way of putting that. Um, but so I I don't know if for me is like is it takes a nation of millions to hold us back by Public Enemy. Like is that Rain and Blood? Like what is it? Like yeah. it is the most. It was so freaking hardcore. 
yeah. when it came out. And but the for me, why it's a masterpiece is all of the the James Brown and the JB samples that are in it that permeate the horns and the squeals and all that. Those things were powerful and they cut through like they cut through you like a knife. Yeah. And that that's when I when I first heard Public Enemy was because of those samples. Well, um, when you hear yeah. really good sampling or when you realize that you know a song because of a sample, you can see kind of the language that it provides among musicians, right? And how so much of this, especially in its birth and its early years, was met as a way to kind of pay tribute. I don't think, I mean, I'm sure there there are people with bad motivations everywhere, but I, I really find it hard to believe that the people who were really doing this in the beginning, their motivations were, hey, we're going to make a million dollars on somebody else's work. The idea was, we are building on this, we are expanding on this, we are borrowing from this, we are, you know, we are using this as a texture um, to kind of point to where we've been before, especially in hip hop, and that all has to kind of go away. Now, you could, there is an argument to say it forces a new kind of creativity. What it forces is a guy like Dr. Dre, who starts using this interpolation concept um to further his work and 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 do what he needs to do as early as 1989 his production started being styled around fewer samples per track and then using the studio instrumentation now the other thing he did was he found artists who didn't care if they were sampled because they wanted it sampled and that's yeah. why you hear a lot of parliament funkadelic on dr dre yeah. records because they're cool with yeah. it so shout out to Parliament Funk- Funkadelic. I feel like there's got to be an episode somewhere down the line about Parliament Funkadelic. I feel uh, like I have George a lot to Cl- learn. Well, George Clinton alone really is is what's really fascinating. I have a when we get kind of near the end, I had a song I wanted to ask about samples. Uh, yeah, well, I got cleared. I, I wanted. I, I did want to ask you about your favorite samples. Like I think that's where I do want to end. But before we do that, kind of kind of to put the punchline on this story. Do you know? Uh, I mean, I will say, the sad part of this is this really tanks Bismarcky. Like, it, it yeah. remains to be seen if Bismarcky would have been more than a one-hit wonder, quote-unquote, a term I don't really like, but would he have been more popular, had more hits, if this hadn't happened? Maybe, maybe not, but this definitely sets him back. Um, he does put out another album a few years later. Do you have any idea what that next record was called? No, no. It I was, don't remember listening to him at much after uh, the hit at all. It was called... All samples cleared! Exclamation point. Wow, funny. <laughs> so, so I do want to know what's what do you when you think of of samples that you love, uh, what do you think of? It's not my favorite sample, but I just I I've opened up Google when you were doing something right then, and because I, I was like I was going to ask you, then I thought I'd just tell let's tell everybody and you at once. So I wondered, did Puff Daddy really pay? like those guys in the police for the biggie small song like does it really so i looked it up the answer to that brian is no that the the puff daddy every breath you whatever the the that song. that would be an interpolation um well apparently he got zero permission didn't ask really? Sting about it all that is correct Sting makes $2,000 a day, $730,000 a year because of that song. Wow. 
700 grand a year to sit around and do yoga and have like <laughs> sex for eight hours. And he gets paid, he gets paid three quarters of a million dollars for that, that piece uh, of crap. So, so actually this isn't a sample, but it made me think of this. The, um, you, you mentioned like how much money he makes every time that song plays. I was in a store like over the summer and I heard fight test by the flaming lips. And I was like, did Cat Stevens sue them over this? Because this sounds Flight just test? like father and son. Fight test. Do you know this song? Yeah. Okay. Oh, so absolutely. Yeah. It's basically the same song with different words. And so I looked it up, and it does it does in fact turn out that every time Fight Test is played, um, <laughs> Cat Stevens makes seventy five cents. <laughs> he makes three quarters. I love this song. I thought I was right. I thought it better not to fight. I thought there was a virtue and always be cool. I mean, it's the same song. It's the same song with cooler like drums. Oh, way cooler drums. I literally was in the store and I was like, is this a cover of Father and Son? No. I mean, it is, but no. So, you know, hey, we, we, we've spent some time here recently litigating whether or not people are ripping other people off. Uh, and I'm just here to say that it's it's makes me wonder what hip hop would be like if it hadn't been for that court case in 1991. But if you have a story you want us to, to check out, I, I hope first of all, Ed, I hope that was good enough. I hope we've <laughs> we've shed some light on that for you. Uh, you can write us at wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. Uh, check us out. Uh, the website is wearethestoryguys.com. You can find other shows that we do there. And um, we would love to uh, look into something else for you. And I will tell you that we've got some good episodes coming up, including I'm not, I'm not even going to tease it. I've got a really good one coming up soon. Okay. So anyway, keep sampling. Keep telling. <laughs> oh, yeah. Keep stealing samples. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright point have we got stories productions. All rights reserved. <laughs>